We come to the talk entitled Nibbana Pachayo Hotu, and this will be the last reading of the winter retreat uh, today, since tomorrow is the observance day, and then the day after is the day after, and then we finish the retreat on Friday morning. So this will be the uh, the finale in terms of these daily readings. So Nibbana Pachayo Hotu, which means let it be a cause for Nibbana. Pachayo is a, a cause or a condition, a supportive, um, say, uh, uh, say, elements uh, in the way that things are related to each other. And hotu is the verb to be, so let it be a cause for nibbana. The profound teaching of Buddhism is that morality is necessary. Morality resides with the intentions of people. If you have the conscious determination to refrain from harmful activities and wrongdoing by way of body and speech, morality is coming about within you. You should know this within yourself. It's fine to take vows with another person, and you can also recollect the precepts by yourself. If you don't know what they are, you can request them from someone. It's nothing very complicated or distant. So really, whenever you wish to receive morality and dharma, you have them right at that moment. It is just like the air that surrounds you everywhere. Wherever you breathe, you take it in. All manner of good and evil are like that. If you wish to do good, you can do it anywhere, anytime. You can do it alone or with others. Evil is the same. You can do it with a large group or a small group, or hidden in an, or in an open place. When there is morality, you should pursue dharma. Morality means the precepts as to what is proscribed and what is permissible. Proscribed as in forbidden, not prescribed as in recommended. <laughs> slightly different spelling. What is proscribed and what is permissible. Dharma refers to nature and to humans knowing about nature, how things exist according to nature. So this is uh, Lumpur um, beginning at one of his very uh, familiar uh, usual places, encouraging uh, morality. Uh, Sila for the lay community in particular, but also um, uh, I think he's uh, uh, underscoring the fact that it's it's fine to take the pre uh, with other the, vow the vows or precepts with another person. You can also recollect the precepts by yourself. Uh, sometimes um, I'm not sure what, whether it's the same in other Buddhist countries, but people have the the perception in Thailand that you've got to kind of get the precepts from an ajahn. They kind of as if they you can't sort of find them on your own. There's sort of a package or a kind of delivery that you get through the through the airwaves and that you can't just sort of um, find them in, in other means. And he's saying, no, <laughs> it's, like, it's like the air that you breathe or, you know, or I would say like the, the force of gravity, it's, it's everywhere. So, um, uh, and it's, it's interesting, some Ajans in, in, in the forest tradition, they, um, in the, the formal ceremony, when people say, I'd like to request the precepts, they'll say, no. I can't give them to you. You, you determine them for yourself. You're not getting them from me. Or, and sometimes they won't even speak, or they they don't participate in the ceremony. They say, "Okay, recite the precepts." Um, to to cut through that sense of, "Oh, the Ajahn is giving you the kind of mojo, giving you the the, the precept substance," and otherwise you wouldn't be able to keep the sila, or you you wouldn't kind of quote unquote have them if they weren't given to you by an outside agent. So it's it's not uncommon, as I understand it, that you know, Ajans will say, uh, like, okay, just just recite the precepts. And I make a point of, of um, on a Sunday morning, of saying, uh, the opportunity to determine the the precepts uh, and the refuges, rather than saying, you know, I will give you them. So I mean, obviously, I slip up sometimes, and the words just kind of <laughs> roll out as they do, but because it's it's a, um, that, oh, we'd like to request the precepts, yeah. <laughs> You can get a bit too pedantic about it and say, no, you're not requesting anything. You're just taking the opportunity. This is an occasion to recollect. But I do think that the point is, is significant, that it's not coming from anywhere outside our own minds. That's where the, the precepts are an attribute of, of our own resolution, our own intention, our own uh, mindfulness with respect to our speech and our actions. And so uh, the presence of another can encourage us or create an occasion for that to be remembered and recollected. But it's not like you're actually sort of getting some kind of 
special, you know, <laughs> palang, as they call it in Thailand, some kind of power, or some sort of um, shaktipat, you know, for the kind of energy from a, or some sort of special treatment or purification from an, uh, an outside agent. So rather, no, it's, it's encouraging you to make that resolution uh, to draw upon your own resources. So um, that's not such a, a big issue in the West. Um, for, for Western people, we don't have the same kind of mythology around that, but it is a very a common perception in, in Asia. And I've even known in uh, when I was at a, an ordination ceremony at a, a monastery in the States uh, uh, that um, in a, a northern tradition um, uh, monastery that um, they have this uh, idea of the precept substance. And if you're not paying attention during the ordination ceremony, like if you were distracted, then there's this uh, this concern people have. Oh, I didn't receive the pre the quote unquote precept substance because I was distracted. I wasn't paying attention. So I don't think I'm really ordained, even if all of the ceremony was done properly and all the words were done correctly. And I, I felt, oh, this is a swamp. You know, <laughs> really, the, the 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 possibilities for doubt. Like, ooh, did I did I blink? Yeah, <laughs> was I paying total attention the whole time? Did I get the delivery of the that's precept substance, and you know this this, per, the, this this monk who was in the ceremony was genuinely very very concerned. So he said, "Can I redo the ceremony? Because <laughs> because I, I I think I didn't get the uh, I wasn't really paying close enough attention." And you know he was very distressed and wanted to make sure that he really was ordained. So that I'm really glad in the southern world we don't have the same kind of mythology, but you do have to remember the words. <laughs> but uh, you don't, there isn't that kind of um, supposed, uh, like an invisible energy exchange that's going on, um, which can create, a, as I can see, a lot of uh, room for, for doubt and uncertainty in, uh, in candidates and so forth. So, uh, and then, again, once again, Lumpo is um, sort of uh, referring to Dhamma as nature. Dhamma refers to nature and to humans knowing about nature, how things exist according to to nature. And re reflecting on this, one, and there was a question, um, I think Tan uh, Kosala was asking, he said, what actually is the Dhamma? You know, <laughs> how does the, the, the conditioned Dhammas and, the, and Dhamma as a sort of general or purpose term and Dhamma as the ultimate reality, how do those relate together? Um, it's, again, it's not an absolutely perfect um, match, but uh, in, in terms of, sort of Western uh, intellectual um, mapping of things, uh, I find the uh, David Bohm's um, distinction between the expli explicate order and the implicate order. Um, the, uh, there's a, a, a kind of a very significant book of his called Wholeness and the Implicate Order. What he calls the implicate order, I think, it, I feel, is a very, very close match to what we mean by Dhamma as a, um, a, in a transcendent sense, because it's um, the ex explicate order, again, these are not very common English terms. <laughs> the explicate order is the world of, of people and things, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the material world. It's explicate, it's, ex uh, it's demonstrated, it's, uh, it's visible, it's tangible. Implicate, like what is implied, what is not tangible, what is not visible. And, and he's, he's a uh, he, he literally wrote the textbook on quantum mechanics. He's like the kind of, back in the 19... 50s, he wrote the sort of the main textbook on quantum theory, quantum mechanics. So he's a very, very gifted physicist. Um, but I do think philosophically, and he had many, many conversations with Krishnamurti. Uh, he has a, quite a uh, profound thinker and explorer of reality. And so um, uh, I, one of those conclusions that he came to is that uh, that this what we think of as the transcendent reality or the um, that um, transcendent dimension of of being, um, he uses that term uh, implicate order, and which is uh, and then where, the way he describes it as uh, as sort of timeless, um, formless, uh, underpinning everything, you know that which all of the the explicate order emerges from, uh, and so that uh, yeah, in, in many respects it corresponds to to Dhamma. I wouldn't. I mean, I'm, I know I'm being recorded. <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, write it in stone, but I do think there's a lot of very helpful parallels in that, in terms of 
of how he describes that. So it's a little bit of, uh, it's somewhat dense reading, the wholeness and the implicate order, but it's worth patience and endurance and getting through it. It's not an easy read, some of it, but I do feel he's extremely insightful and in terms of languaging things from a Western philosophical and scientific point of view, that that um, in terms of the uh, Sankata Dhammas, Asankata Dhammas, the, the uh, conditioned reality and the unconditioned reality, his way of phrasing it as the implicate order and the explicate order is, is very skillful. So uh, again, Tatiampi, it's not an easy read. <laughs> it can take a while to get through it, but he's, he's also, uh, even though he's a physicist as a, his background and, and, and uh, quite a, a gifted philosopher, uh, in terms of many many dialogues he had with Krishnamurti, which are recorded, you can you can listen to those and see see them on YouTube. I think he's also extremely skilled with language, and so quite often he'll take a particular word and then uh, and then explore the etymology of the word. And uh, uh, and so, so like uh, he, for example, the word fact. You know, we we take the word fact as meaning something that's absolutely true. He says. If you know, uh, the word fact actually comes from the Latin facere, which means created or formed or made. So a fact, right, in the word, so I was telling you, this is something that's constructed. It's not absolutely real. It's, it's, a, it's a formed thing. And he does that quite regularly. So he's obviously quite a gifted linguist and, and very knowledgeable and has a good feeling for language and, and the meaning uh, of um, words. Things like like measure also. Oh, I won't go into it in detail, but uh, <laughs> I quote him quite a lot in a, the, a book I did a year or so ago called "Mind Is What Matters." I quoted him quite a lot a lot in there and, and picked out some of those, particularly some of those useful etymologies with uh, with words that he explores. So I, I do feel he was a a great uh, bright light in the Western world in terms of bridging a. a um, uh, so sort of profound understanding in and putting it into a Western language. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. I have just a question concerning the um, ceremony of taking preset. Mm -hmm. I, I always thought that it was from the early early text, uh, but now I think about it. Is there any mention of this ceremony? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the ordination process. Originally, it was just taking the three refuges. Taking the three refuges. Yeah, but the five precepts and eight precepts. Um, the five precepts and the eight precepts, they are mentioned. Uh, the actual ceremonial determination of them, is not described, but the Buddha, um, both the 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 upasampada, the ordination process in the early days was just taking the the three refuges, and also. Um, Technically, I've been told by senior elders that when we have a pabaja, like a novice ordination, the actual pabaja, the actual ordination bit, is not the spelling out of the words of the precepts. It's actually the, um, the taking the the three refuges. That's the and then uh, spelling out. Okay, what you've just committed yourself to in this in instance is then the 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 ten precepts uh, are kind of are then named, but the actual commitment. Uh, is in the, the three refuges, so that uh, that's there in, from the earliest times uh, in the in the Vinaya texts. The description of the five precepts and then the eight precepts, and particularly the establishing the eight precepts as a training form for lay people on the moon days that comes straight out of the suttas. But the form the form of you know, um, Panati Pata Samadhi I don't think. I don't think that is, uh, and certainly not with with uh, with a, a uh, led by a monk or a nun. I don't think that's anywhere in the in the scriptures. Um, I think that's like a, cerem a ceremonial form that's emerged later on. But the the actual um, using the the precepts as a format for for sort of daily life, and then also for the moon days, for uh, that's quite clearly spelled out in the in a number of suttas. But the yeah the, the 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 structure of the ceremony I'm pretty sure there's there's nowhere that's described. And the the taking of the refuges is that uh, the, the Buddhist and this is how it should be done. Yeah. Before the sangha got too big, that was the the way it was done. Okay. 
So we're definitely not going to get through the whole of this talk today. So <laughs> don't be filled with expectation that we'll, we'll cover the whole thing. But, uh, we'll get as far as we get. The Buddha taught Dharma for us to know nature, to let go of it, and to let it exist according to its conditions. This is talking about the material world. As to the mind, it can't be left to follow its own conditions. It has to be trained. We can say that mind is the teacher of body and speech, so it needs to be well trained. Letting it go according to its natural urges just makes us animals. It has to be instructed and trained. It should come to know nature, but should not be left merely to follow nature. Born into this world, all of us naturally have the afflictions of desire, anger and delusion. Desire makes us crave various things and causes the mind to be in a state of imbalance and turmoil. It won't do to let the mind go after these impulses of craving. That can only lead to torment and distress. It's better to train in Dharma, in truth. When aversion occurs in us, we want to express anger towards people, and it may get to the point of physically attacking or even killing someone. But we don't just let the impulse go according to its nature. We know the nature of what is occurring, we see it for what it is, and teach the mind about it. This is studying Dharma. Delusion is the same. When it happens, we're confused about things. If we merely leave it as it is, we remain in ignorance. So, the Buddha told us to learn about nature, to train the mind, to know exactly what nature is. So sometimes uh, yeah, it gets forgotten that um, um, we, we can praise being natural or, doing, or you know, following nature or living in accordance with nature but it is also helpful to remember that selfishness is natural, violence is natural, <laughs> greed is natural, laziness is natural. So, and Lumpur is underscoring that here. Not everything that's natural is beneficial. And so that, that clear distinction about what's wholesome and liberating uh, and what is unwholesome and, 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 and burdensome, then to, to be clear about that. So that this uh, working with the mind... Uh, and then uh, establishing the wholesome intentions, skillful intentions and skillful action and speech, then that creates a wholesome bridge with the material world and the human society and the, the, living, the living system that we're a part of. People are born with physical form and mind. In the beginning, these things are born. In the middle, they change, and in the end, they are extinguished. This is their nature. We can't do much to alter these facts. We train our minds as we can, and when the time comes, we have to let go of it all. It's not within the power of humans to change this or get beyond it. The Dharma the Buddha taught is something to be applied while we are here, for making actions, words and thoughts correct and wholesome. He was teaching the minds of people so they would not be deluded in regard to nature, to conventional reality and supposition. The teacher instructed us to see the world, his Dharma was a teaching that is above and beyond the world. We were born into this world. He taught us to transcend the world, not to be prisoners to worldly ways and habits. It's like a diamond that falls into a muddy pit. No matter how much dirt and filth cover the diamond, they do not destroy the radiance, the hues and the worth of it. Even though the mud is stuck to it, the diamond does not lose anything. But it is just as it originally was. They're two separate things. The Dharma the teacher expounded was for going beyond suffering. What is this going beyond suffering all about? What should we do to escape from suffering? It's necessary for us to do some study. We need to study the thinking and feeling in our hearts. Just that. It's something that we're presently unable to change. We can be free of all suffering and unsatisfactoriness in life by changing this one point. Our habitual world view our way of thinking and feeling. If we transform our sense of things, we transcend the old confused perceptions and understanding. So once again, Lumpur packs a lot of very significant material into <laughs> short, uh, 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 kind of a, uh, in, a, in a brief way, a very succinct way. And so that, um, uh, as I said, uh, this f first part about uh, understanding nature, seeing how it works, learning what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and then also, as he points out, um, 
teaching the minds of people so they would not be deluded in regard to nature to conventional reality and supposition. So the word supposition um, is one of the ways that they translate uh, samuti satya. So he often would make, makes the distinction between paramata satya, uh, ultimate truth, and conventional truth, samuti satya. And um, uh, in in the Thai language, he would also pair the, the those terms as kong vimut, uh, liberating things, and kong samut, conventional things. And so supposition, is, again, it's a, it's a little bit of an unusual use of the English. He Sometimes it's translated as things that are designated into existence, things that are, that are supposed to uh, into existence, things that are determined into existence. So it's all to do with the mind labeling things. This is mine, that's yours, this is beautiful, that's ugly, this is expensive, this is worthless. Um, the, the value and meaning and... Um, those kind of attributes that are, that are ascribed to different things, physical and and mental, and so all of that is in the samuti satya, the conventional truth, how the mind determines things into existence, and the um, one of the the, the, the most sort of primal places where Lumpur talks about this is a, a talk that's um, entitled "Convention and Liberation," and it starts off with the words. All the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. Having established them, we get lost in them, giving rise to all kinds of trouble and confusion. Uh, I've often considered, we just need that one sentence. <laughs> just sit on that for three months. <laughs> all the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. Having established them, we get lost in them. So people, things, places, countries, names, nationalities, stories, they are things that are... are, are uh, uh, supposed determined into existence. Even meditation practice, we say mindfulness of breathing. We, you know, we mindful, you know, walking meditation. You know, what is the breath? You know, the the lungs taking in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. What is a footstep? You know, the body moving, uh, articulating its legs and and uh, crossing some space. You know, we put those together and we say walking meditation, and we say mindfulness of breathing. Um, so that uh, when the world is really looked at very closely, uh, and uh, Lumpocha is speaking from that place of great clarity, saying, yeah, everything, <laughs> all the things of the world, it's not just a hyperbolic statement. He, he really means all the things of the world are merely uh, conventions of our own creation. Yeah, that the, the thingness of things, <laughs> the way they are labeled, the way the mind relates to them, these are... Uh, created, they're formed, they're coloured and shaped by the conditioning of the mind, and so that um, uh, understanding nature, sort of quote unquote, as it is, and then the suppositions, determinations, the, the, the all the the overlay that our thinking mind, our language, and our, our preferences, I say, paste onto that the the raw reality of uh, of experiencing, and so that. That transcending of the world is seeing, essentially it's around seeing that, oh, these are conventions that we create, person, book, retreat, not retreat, um, uh, and uh, how we designate things. And, and speaking of the beginning and ending, ending of retreats, one of uh, Ajahn Sujito's most uh, famous utterances, well, many, many, <laughs> many, many uh, uh, admirable utterances, um, he was when he was the abbot at Chithurst at the beginning of the winter retreat period. There, there hadn't been some kind of distinct moment where he had said the retreat is now beginning, you know, and um, and so but they had just sort of the routine had been changing and the instruction was being given and and somebody one of the or maybe it was someone who's here. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure who asked. Ajahn, uh, when will the, the retreat actually begin? And uh, and Ajahn Sajito, with his um, his unique skill with expression, he said, "For some, it has begun already; for others, it never will." <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's absolutely on the mark. Yeah, he's uh, extraordinarily astute in uh, his uh, understanding of human nature. Sometimes, yeah. So rather than having a kind of, I'm more of a kind of, here's the line, this is before the line, this is the after the line. I'm much more kind of, 
kind of Mondrian-like in my scope, clear lines that are you know one side and the other, and Shinsuji's more kind of uh, merging <laughs> and uh, uh, less uh, less less formed and de- delineated in his manner of um, instruction. So. And then uh, the, the expression that Lumpo Cha uses here, we are born into this world, he taught us to transcend the world. And that's uh, uh, referring and uh, uh, quoting quite a number of the occasions where the Buddha spoke about uh, uh, enlightened beings are speaking about himself, uh, born into the world but have transcended the world, like a, a lotus flower has its, has its um, roots in the mud, but it, it rises up above the surface of the water. And uh, blossoms in the in the uh, in the open air, and so even it's got its uh, roots in the world. You know, then a, an enlightened being then transcends the world uh, in that same kind of a way. And so that uh, like a uh, the born into the world, but yet transcending of the world. So that 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 mixture. Yes, as a physical body, and he had uh, human parents, and uh, he was born in the usual way, um, but. Through the the um, the, the uh, means of training the mind and the, the process of total uh, totally liberating the, the citta, then he was able to uh, embody that quality which transcends the world. So that the the, the body and the, the mental faculties were born in the usual way in, in the conditioned realm, but then through enlightenment, being able to tap into that transcendent dimension of 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 reality of the heart, and to trans, uh, to although born into the world, then to use that birth to transcend the world. We're born into this world. He taught us to transcend the world, not to be prisoners of worldly ways and habits. And then he uses this very beautiful image of a diamond that 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 say that potential, that purity of heart that is uh, that's uh, ever present or is ever potential. Uh, like a diamond that falls into the mud, you know that that uh, that fundamental reality of of things is always present. It, it can't be lost, even if it's covered up with with mud. Uh, it's still the value is still there. The um, uh, the radiance, the hues, and the worth of it are, are still there. So that even though the the mind might get fully distracted or caught up with with worldly concerns, the the fundamental nature of mind is still dhamma, and so that uh, it uh, that potential is is there even though it gets heavily covered up and and uh, and, and missed and as he says they, they are there are two separate things also brought to mind that image he uses of oil and water that the, the mind which is aware and awake and, and transcends you know knows the world and transcends the world like uh, if it's um, if we have oil and water in a single bottle and we shake the bottle up, it seems to be one liquid, but if we put the bottle down, then the oil and the water naturally separate from each other. They are two separate things. The, the, the qualities of, uh, exp- of, the, of the worldly experience, of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and that which knows them, they, they separate out. If we just put the bottle down, then they, they, uh, that, uh, the qualities of the world and that which knows the world, they... Uh, they're, they they tease themselves apart naturally, but uh, usually we don't put the bottle down. So we always <laughs> shaking it up like the uh, salad dressing to make it properly mixed. And so that because we do a lot of bottle shaking, then the, it seems to be I'm thinking, I'm seeing, I'm feeling. It's my life, my body, my hopes, my fears, my achievements, my problems, and and that sense of uh, ownership and identification, attachment is. Is sort of woven into the, those perceptions. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. Uh, is that, that from what you were saying, that idea of, of not shaking up the bottle, you know, which I think is a really good image and really helpful. But if you sort of ask yourself, what what does that mean? Does that mean meditate? Uh, but then you might look at someone who's been meditating for many, many years, but actually their bottle might be quite... <laughs> yes, they can know. be busily shaking the bottle as they meditate, yes. Might be, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Well, we all could be, but yeah. But 
But so I suppose if it's not about how much, it's all about just how many hours or treats or years. No, no, no. It's not about that. So, so what is it? Is it about stillness? What, how would, could you say just a bit more about not shaking the bottle? Uh, well, what he points to here, and I feel is, is he says, uh, it's right view. So it's just that. Um, it's necessary for us to study thinking and feeling in our hearts. We can be free of all suffering and unsatisfactoriness by changing this one point, our habitual worldview, our way of thinking and feeling. So it's how the mind relates to its thoughts and feelings, our loves and hates, our emotions, our memories, our ideas, and the physical body, the physical world. It's the view that changes everything. Attitude. So right attitude, right view. How moment by moment the heart regards comfort, discomfort, gain, loss, praise, criticism, etc., etc. So that, I would say, that's the, the putting down of the bottle is the establishment of, of right view. So meditation and the sila and, and the right renunciation, simplicity, and so, so on and so forth, those are all skillful means that, that say, support that, put it down, put it, put it down, put it down, <laughs> leave it alone, <laughs> that uh, support that establishment of right view and, that, that, and seeing things clearly. But uh, as, uh, as Lung Po Cha often mentions, you know, it's not, yeah, it's, it's important that we do make effort and we're very sincere about the practice, but it does, it's not, just because you're making sort of heroic efforts or doing a lot of stuff doesn't mean to say that it's particularly useful. And it's not just hours of meditation or um, or you know, austerities uh, that uh, that you go through. And, uh, those can be helpful, and he certainly did you know, many, many um, hundreds, thousands and thousands of hours of meditation himself. But the key piece, just as he articulates here, is that transforming the, the, the view, the, the attitude that the mind has to see, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, remembering, imagining, and uh, the experiential field. So that's, I would say, that's the key piece, mm. is that, and then right, and then that establishment of, of right view, and, and, and in right, the rightness of right view is really a view which is in tune with, with reality, that is, so that it's, it's not just right as opposed to wrong, but it's also to do with noticing when the mind is grasping or rejecting that it's uh, that, that, that kind of distortion of, of attachment or, or uh, grasping hold or pushing away, that, that's noticed very quickly, very easily. So part of right view is not just sort of right opinions or right ideas, but it's also that feeling of, oh, <laughs> I just picked up the bottle again, or, or that uh, someone praises us, like Ajahn Sundra saying, oh, that Sophie ought to have an award, you know. <laughs> oh, you know, I felt a lot of mudita for you when she said that. <laughs> but then, you know, but then that way, oh, that's very nice. But then the mind can grab, I'm not saying that that would happen, necessarily would happen, but the mind can say, oh, you know, that's, I'm appreciated, that, you know, that's very sweet, and then get uh, drawn into, so I, so I really am worth something, because, I've, you know, somebody has made a gesture of appreciation. Or they could do the opposite. They say, eh, well, you know, nurses can Yeah, they're, they're really not, don't make that much of a difference. You know? And then we feel, we feel sort of rejected or hurt. So then that, uh, the establishment of, of, of uh, a right view, or view which is in, in tune with, with, with Dhamma, with reality, it's like, oh, look, I just grasped that praise and that, that gesture of, approval and and uh, uh, affection like, uh, or oh i just grasped that that f- that feeling of dismissal or, or criticism uh, and then noticing that 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 grasping happening and not turning it into a person that's doing the grasping but just oh <laughs> feeling and knowing that kind of tension as it forms and then seeing what that is oh that was that was a reaction to praise or that was a reaction to criticism oh that's that's how things work. Here is the cause, and this is the effect. Aha, that's how nature works. If there's praise, there's a warm glow in the heart. If there's criticism, there's a kind of, <laughs> a kind of bitter uh, sense of uh, uh, tension or hurt. That's, there's the cause, there's the effect. That's it. And so you're not suppressing it or grasping hold or getting lost in it, but you're knowing that's the, 
That's the, the way that nature works. That's the flavor of it. So the more the mind can see in that, basically in terms of nature rather than in terms of self, is another easy way to, to relate to it. The more the, that seeing with the eye of Dhamma, seeing things in terms of, of the natural order rather than in terms of me and mine, then that's the establishment of that skillful view. On that, go ahead. Um, so I was just thinking about this is sort of just so blame, criticism, blame. Mm-hmm. We all, I mean, we all find difficult, you know. And you tend to sort of, and you were talking about how to work with that as opposed to say blame. But there's a sort of distinction between when somebody gives you feedback that is actually. It could it could be helpful mm-hmm. to take it think oh yeah I want that actually you know I was paying in that way or I mm-hmm. wasn't aware of that or whatever it happens to be and I, and it's kind of an important isn't that a, a principle of of saying the life too absolutely yeah to be able mm-hmm. to give and receive feedback in a in a helpful way so if somebody what's the, is there something about the distinction between oh well you know blame's not personal you know it's mm-hmm. not really me but actually some feedback it's good to take it's good to take it a bit personally or to think oh yeah (laughs) that habit is having that effect and isn't skill isn't beautiful Mm -hmm. is is having ripples that aren't particularly beneficial so so yeah i don't know it's just something about when 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 blame is actually helpful Mm. not just as a detachment from well, there was an, an earlier talk, um, maybe it was, uh, it was before you, you got here, where Lumpur Cha was talking about exactly that. Like if people give you feedback, then you consider, okay, um, does that have any validity or does it, does it not? You know, you should listen to it and receive it. And if they say, if, if you look at it and you explore it and you say, actually, that's true, that's kind of helpful. Whether they're being malicious or whether they're actually being kindly is kind of secondary. <laughs> Ideally, they're being kindly. But uh, sometimes people can say something that they're they're not very coming from a very kind place. But but then if you hear what they're saying, they actually I think they're right. <laughs> so you know, take note of that. Um, but then also he said if if you if people give you feedback and and uh, it's quite painful to hear, and then you but if you consider well, does it have a basis? Do, do I really do that? Are they, uh, is there any kind of uh, anything to be done about that and if you there's uh, exploring and recognition like no actually they've got their facts wrong or that doesn't really apply I, I think they've, they've, they're not seeing I really don't think they're seeing the situation clearly and so so you but you consider it but you just don't have to take it to heart if it's really doesn't have a basis but his encouragement is to to reflect on what is said and yeah, and uh, when I was doing that reading, there was a, there's a passage, I'm not sure where it is in the suttas, where the Buddha says, if you are offered uh, uh, the choice between receiving admonishment from a, f- a fellow in the, you know, friend in the holy life and a pile of gold, you should, you should, wow. you should vote, you should choose the, the admonishment. It's much more precious to you than <laughs> a pile of gold bullion. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Buddha was, was brilliant at coming up with these very, the graphic images. Okay, so to continue a little bit. The authentic Dharma of the Buddha is not something pointing far away. It teaches self. It teaches about the concept of self and that things are not really self. All the teachings of the Buddha gave sorry, all the teachings the Buddha gave were pointing out that this is not a self, this does not belong to a self. There is no such thing as ourselves or others. When we contact this, we can't really read it. We don't translate the Dharma correctly. We think, this is me. This is mine. We attach to things and invest them with meaning. When we do this, we can't disentangle from them. The involvement deepens and the mess gets worse and worse. If we know that there is no self, that body and mind are really not self, as the Buddha taught, when we keep on investigating, we will eventually come to realize the actual condition of selflessness. We'll genuinely see that there is no self or other. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Feeling is merely feeling. Memory is merely memory. 
thinking is merely thinking. They are all things that are merely themselves. Good is merely good, bad is merely bad. There is no real happiness or real suffering. They are merely existing conditions, merely happy, merely suffering, merely hot, merely cold, merely a being or a person. We should keep looking to see that things are only so much. Only earth, only water, only fire, only air. We should keep on reading these things and investigating this point. Eventually our perception will change. The tight conviction that there is self and things belonging to self will gradually come undone. When this sense of things is removed, the opposite perception will keep increasing steadily. So Lumpur is really kind of underscoring, <laughs> underscoring that point. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the Thai word for, for merely would be, but kenan is, it's only that. It's a kind of it's just that that just just that much, cannot. It's only that um, uh, that uh, to change the view, <laughs> to to uh, to uh, re uh, rescript the way the mind holds you know, memories and thoughts and feelings, good and bad and and so on and so forth. I thought, and also you know, as I was reading that, I was reminded of when. Um, uh, when you look at some of the northern Buddhist scriptures uh, about what is a person and a you know, living being, um, some of them are, I find are very helpful. So there's a, a few passages from the Vajra Sutra, the Vajra Paramita Sutra, the Diamond Sutra. Um, and so this is a dialogue between uh, the Buddha and one of his enlightened disciples called Subhuti. So the language is a little bit different from the the Pali, but uh, I feel these are very helpful principles. So this is from a, a, um, a, a thing I wrote called The View from the Center in um, Roots and Currents, this little book. The Buddha told Subhuti, all bodhisattvas, mahasattvas should subdue their hearts with the vow, I must cause all living beings to enter nirvana without residue and be taken across to extinction. Yet of the immeasurable, boundless numbers of living beings thus taken across to extinction, there is actually no living being taken across to extinction. And why? Subhuti, if a bodhisattva has a mark of self, a mark of others, a mark of living beings, or a mark of a life, then they are not a bodhisattva. The Buddha said, Subhuti, they are neither living beings nor no living beings. And why? Subhuti. Living beings, living beings are spoken of by the Tathagata as no living beings. Therefore, they are called living beings. Subhuti, what do you think? You should not maintain that the Tathagata has this thought, I shall take living beings across. Subhuti, do not have that thought. And why? There are actually no living beings taken across by the Tathagata. If there were living beings taken across by the Tathagata, then the Tathagata would have the existence of a self, of others, of living beings, and of a life. Subhuti, the existence of a self is spoken of by the Tathagata is no existence of a self, but common people take it as the existence of a self. Subhuti, common people are spoken of by the Tathagata as no common people, therefore they are called common people. So that might not be very illuminating. <laughs> But I feel these are these are very um, helpful ways of when the, you know, the the mind explores the question, what is a person? Uh, and reading uh, Lumpur's words on the T-shirt, it's not what you think. <laughs> Though we we uh, we create uh, individuality, we create persons, we have these bodies and, na and names and stories and whatnot, um, and these kind of somewhat mind-blowing reflections and statements, uh, I feel are. Um, so they're, they're, they're straddling that realm of you know, living beings, living beings, they're called living beings um, uh, as no living beings, therefore they're called living beings. It's like, huh? <laughs> that you're definitely uh, in the realm of this is just a conventional way of speaking for convenience, um, but we're not creating the idea of a permanent, separate, independent entity. And so that... Um, because there are no living beings, there we, therefore we designate them into being. And Lumpur Chah says very, very similar things in a number of his Dhamma talks. That, uh, you know, so there aren't really any beings. That's why we, you know, we have to determine beings into existence. That's why we talk about women and men and old and young, and tall and short and so forth. We, we have to describe those because they don't really exist. And again, when you read that in Lumpur Chah's teachings, often you'll think, huh? They don't exist, therefore we have to determine them into existence. 
If they did exist, we wouldn't have to determine them. Uh, you know, let me think about that for a moment. <laughs> but I do feel that these are kind of um, principles that it's useful to, to to read them, to get familiar with them, and to to contemplate um, uh, because of it puts into a bit of a perspective the presumptions that we have about what is a living being, what am I, what what is a person, and you know, and those kind of comments that Lumpur makes uh, uh, about. Just what, you know, one who speaks of birth and death is using the language of ignorant children. Like, well, I was born, and you, know, you just said we're all going to die one day. But, uh, how does that fit together? But it's bringing into the perspective that that you know, the the ultimate dimension of things, where yes, these bodies get born, things begin and end, but that's not the whole story. There is that dimension of being which is unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. And as he says, if there was not the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, then liberation from the born, the created, the originated, the formed would not be possible. And uh, as Lumpur Tsumedo has been mentioning in quite a number of recent talks, you know, Dhamma itself, that transcendent aspect of Dhamma, is literally unimaginable, unimageable. <laughs> you, you can't create an image of it. I, imagery doesn't apply. So, and I think as yesterday I was just saying, the most you get is apparent here and now, timeless. It's not a lot to hang a hat on, you know. It's like there's there's not a, a lot of of concrete um, uh, attributes there. But the uh, the Buddha, um, I feel, was extraordinarily skillful in focusing mostly on the path to to realize that ephemeral, unimaginable quality itself that implicate order rather than the easily tangible visible explicate <laughs> visible uh, tangible uh, you know, uh, aspect to say well, this is how you use the, the tangible the, the, the conditioned and the formed in order to enable the unconditioned the unformed to be realized to be uh, actualized to be uh, to be known and to be embodied and so he uh, he spent most of his teaching, like I would say, about ninety nine percent of the teaching, is the path to that realization, rather than that one percent on talking about the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. But it, I would say it is helpful to put the mind onto that, to contemplate that, because it's so easy just to get uh, habituated to the thinking in terms of individuality I you know I'm a person I was born time is passing I live in this place I was there I'm going here and and so on and so forth and to use these teachings to keep under undercutting that thing well that's not the whole story it can't be the whole picture that's that isn't the whole thing and it's because it isn't the whole thing that liberation is possible if that if it was the whole thing if uh, if uh, five kundas were were the only reality, uh, if uh, uh, then liberation wouldn't be wouldn't be possible. So uh, even though these are difficult to to describe, we'll talk about these these sort of un, uh, unlocated, timeless, uh, selfless qualities can leave us a bit sort of adrift um, in the thinking mind. The the conceiving mind is is sort of spluttering. <laughs> What uh, and that uh, I feel is very very helpful indeed to keep bringing that uh, unexpressible, the ineffable, the unimaginable aspects uh, into into consciousness, so that it keeps the expressible, the tangible, you know, in uh, in a proper context. Any thoughts, or you can any disagreements, <laughs> any comments, thoughts. In the Sutta, we see like there is liberation through wisdom and liberation through uh, concentration. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm trying to map in a bit when we when we hear like Alan Pucha talking like this to investigate and see that there is no self, etc. This is more like you can reach awakening through more wisdom. Mm -hmm. And if you go through all the kind of stages of concentration and like cessation of consciousness, all this is more like a route for concentration, liberation, but the outcome is the same. 
Uh, roughly speaking, I mean, it's uh, again, there's the um, there's different ways that things are expressed in different places, but um, one of the distinctions that uh, Lumpur Chao made was that um, that you, there there are in places of what you call wet enlightenment and dry enlightenment, and so that generally the Panyavimuti track, the liberation through wisdom, is the dry enlightenment, and the dryness is like without psychic powers and such like. And so the more so analytical, reflective wisdom track, um, it can be quite quick, but it doesn't bring the psychic powers and those other aspects with it. The wet enlightenment is... Uh, so that was characterized by the Venerable Sariputta. This is the wisdom track. Uh, Venerable Mahamogalana was well, the wet enlightenment track, where then the development of, of uh, meditation uh, in particular, and... Uh, and the, the the absorption, even though Sariputta was a very skilled meditator, he never developed any psychic powers at all. Mahamogalana, his mate, was, was replete with all kinds of psychic powers, but there's only about two or three Dhamma talks in the whole Pali Canon given by Mahamogalana. There's very, very few teachings given by him. Not, uh, not, very, not very much at all, but Sariputta, you have you know, scads and scads. So that um, that... Uh, the the development of psychic powers and such like is often uh, a uh, an attribute of focusing far more on the depth of concentration and such like. It's also a bit to do with aptitude and character and somewhat, but um, <coughs> that it is also taken to be a bit slower. So that the panya vimuti is the quicker, and the and the cheta vimuti a bit slower. But again, it's not absolutely fixed, but. Generally, it's spoken in that way. That I I couldn't swear. It was um, uh, it's it's a uh, Ajahn Chah often quoted from suttas and commentaries without really specifying exactly where things came from. Sure. But he would, uh, I, I, I as far as I'm aware, then he would use those kind of terms as saying you know in the teachings it says it calls this dry enlightenment. And then also the Lumpur Chah said, the way I teach is the way of Sariputta, is the dry enlightenment. So he didn't emphasize developing psychic powers and such like. And, and also I think it was part, it was, part of that was to do with his um, trying to shy away from superstition and all the kind of um, magical realms. And also in this, um, uh, uh, in the next part of this Dhamma talk, um, then he he refers to that uh, a little bit further on. He says, um, "Where are we?" Somewhere in here. <laughs> he and this is what the Buddha taught about. He didn't teach about gods and demons and nagas and protective deities, jealous demigods, nature spirits, and the like. He taught that things that we should know and see, truths we certainly should be able to realize. The truth can be seen in hair, nails, skin, and teeth. <laughs> so, so I thought, okay, that's uh, very, very characteristic of Lumpur, um, because there's such a tendency to get excited about gods and demons and psychic powers and the kind of healing abilities of amulets and whatnot and so, such like. So he was, I think, his emphasis on reflective wisdom and the the so Panyavimuti track. Uh, and then also making that kind of comment, my way is the way of Sariputta, the dry enlightenment, was trying to to sort of dampen that fascination that people tend to have with you know, psychic abilities or having conversations with Brahma gods and whatnot. So that... Uh, yeah, you know, the, the Lumpur Chao was, was well known for people coming along and saying, oh, you know, I had this conversation with this Deva last night, and uh, they came and said, well, do they have anything interesting to say? You know, <laughs> Rather than the fact, oh, wow, you met a Deva, how extraordinary. It's like, so what, what did you talk about? You know? <laughs> Completely got unimpressed and sort of bringing things down to a tangible level, you know. So let's see. (coughs) 
When the realization of selflessness comes to full measure, we will be able to relate to the things of this world, to our most cherished possessions and involvements, to friends and relations, wealth, accomplishments and status, just as we do to our clothes. When clothes are new, we wear them. They get dirty and we wash them. After some time, they're worn out and we discard them. There's nothing out of the ordinary there. We're constantly getting rid of the old things and starting to use new garments. We'll have exactly the same feeling about our existence in this world. We will not cry or moan over things. We won't be tormented or burdened by them. They will, we'll, they will remain the same as they were before, but our feeling towards an understanding of them will be changed. Our knowledge will be exalted and we will see truth. We will, have, we will have attained supreme vision and authentic knowledge of the Dharma. The Buddha taught the Dharma that we ought to know and see, and this Dharma is right here within us, within this body and mind. We have it already. We should come to know and see it. I feel that's a, a very good analogy, that sort of things that are so precious to us, our possessions, our, our relations, our friends, our accomplishments, uh, our status, and you know, the, the things that we do and, the, and so on and so forth, that they can be so so important and and uh, so significant to us, but you know rather like our, our clothes, we look after them and uh, we're glad to have them and we take care of them, but eventually um, they do wear out and then and you've repaired them as many times as they can be repaired and then and then they have to go into the rag bin or to into the um, the, the floor cloth status and so uh, I I I do lo- like to look after things myself you know the, the um, the the things that um, uh, that uh, I'm uh, I'm given I try to take care of and and preserve for as long as possible. It's usually my ad- my attendant saying, oh, John, can we recycle this?" <laughs> so uh, an anksa with about forty five patches on it, or uh, but uh, uh, so uh, we, part of our frugality and uh, caring for uh, and you know, we have a few possessions. But we do look after them as well as we can. But eventually, they they do wear out, and that they they need to be recycled and moved on. So, if you relate to our possessions, our involvements with the world, our friends and relations in the same way that we come together, we look after the the friendship, the relationship. The uh, we uh, are aware of that place in our life, but eventually it wears out, and then we need to move on. And that's uh, some things have got more of an emotional tug to them. Uh, whether it's a you know, a relation, uh, a family member who's passed away, and or someone very dear to us that we we've have a broken friendship with, and it's more of a tug on the hearts heartstrings. Letting go of a worn out pair of shoes is a bit different, <laughs> but uh, he's uh, pointing out that um, if we are developing wisdom, then and we're seeing things in terms of nature, then even those things that are very close to our heart, very dear to us, then we can relate to that in a similar way, not through hard-heartedness or coldness. It, yeah, there was, we were close together and there was a connection, there was a relatedness, I was very involved in that, that was part of my life, and now things have changed, it's moved on, it's not, uh, it's not there anymore. And that the more that we are genuinely able to, to train the heart, then the, uh, we are able to relate to those comings and goings, things um, uh, that are, are sort of near and dear to us, in a radically different way, so not through a kind of clinical coldness, but just no longer entangled or um, or burdened or, or um, possessive. And it's that quality of possessiveness that uh, is the the real stinger. I would say that's the uh, where this belongs to me, or this person belongs to me, or I belong to them, and the the, the amount of self view and conceit that comes into the picture, um, and that. Uh, we we are often not aware of that's that's the thing that really uh, is a, a a stressor in the heart. So if we can relate to things with with uh, kindness and caring and uh, a fullness of heart with respect to to loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, um, then there it doesn't have to be any kind of possessive quality at all. So we can look after our our, our relationships, uh, our work, the, the the people in our family, and those that are close to us. But if there isn't that possessive quality, then we we have very sincere and fine and, and, uh, and beautiful relationships and, and things that we do in the world, the work we do in the world, and and uh, so on and so forth. But it doesn't become a cause for that kind of difficulty or, or dukkha that 
possessiveness is uh, the uh, the cause of. So uh, I will leave it there. Seven o'clock has come around. Any final questions or comments? This is your last chance. <laughs> in nine What's months. The name? Being Dharma. Is it one of the ones that's available? Uh, it's, you have to buy it. Oh, it's uh, uh, Paul Brighter, Warapanyo was the translator. Being Dharma. Being Dharma. Um, Published by? Shambhala, I think. Yeah, Shambhala. It's one of Paul Brighter's uh, pieces. Leave it there for today.